We'll go, uh, let's see here. Put this baby down, and you want to go to Psalm 119, verse, uh, hold on one sec. Verse, uh, I don't know. Hang on here. Uh, yeah, 57. Burke is right. 57. Tent wall, outside divide, aft. Um, you are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face, all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your you. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks righteous cause. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. Earth is filled with your love. Oh, teach me your decrees. Good stuff. And now, it's mercy. Chet. Eh? Chet. That's right. Remember I told you if you say yach, right. like, like, and then just take the Hanukkah. and put it at the Hanukkah beginning. A... Yeah, Hanukkah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here we're going to read uh, today's devotional. Today's 21 December. And let's see here. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton spent most of his early life at sea, the son of a merchant ship commander, midshipman of the British Navy, and a master of a slave ship. Newton knew the waters better than the shore at the, edge of, at the age of 23. It was a great storm at sea that the Lord used as a beacon to cut through the darkness that had characterized Newton's early life. From that point on, John Newton spent his life in the service of God, eventually becoming an Anglican clergyman and the author of many hymns, including, anybody? Amazing, Amazing Grace. Grace. John Newton's final year was analogous to the setting of the sun. He had gradually lost his hearing and his sight, and he could no longer recognize some of his closest friends. He declined to the point where he could not walk unaided. In his closing months, Newton clung to the truths he had spent years preaching from the pulpit and conveying through his writings. In his final month, Newton summarized the sufficiency of his failing mental faculties with these words. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. In spite of his decline, Newton was able to describe the approaching end of his earthly life with great insight and anticipation. I am like a person going on a journey in a stagecoach who expects its arrival every hour and is frequently looking out the window for it. In another conversation, Newton said, it is a great thing to die. And when flesh and heart fail, to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever. I know whom I have believed, and he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that great day. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. <clears throat> On the Wednesday before his death, when someone asked him how he was doing, he replied, I am satisfied with the Lord's will. John's, John Newton's final sunset came on Monday, December 21st, 1807, when he died at the age of 83. He was buried in his church of St. Mary Woolnoth, next to his wife Mary and niece Miss Eliza Cunningham. Newton wrote his own epitaph, which is engraved on a plain marble marblet in the church. It says, John Newton, clerk. I guess that's it, John Newton. Oh, no, and it goes on. Uh, Once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was... 
by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He ministered near, uh, let's see here, uh, 61 years, was as a curate and a vicar of Olney and Bucks, and let's see, 10, that's 20, 20, 28 as a rector of these united parishes. On February the, oh yeah, February the 1st, and I don't know, MCC, MDCCL, whatever, he married Mary, the daughter of the late George Catlett of Chatham, Kent, whom he resigned to the Lord who gave her on December the, let's see, 10, the 15th of some year. Okay, it's all in Roman new characters. So anyway, so reflection. As John Newton's memory began to fail him in his old age, two thoughts remained as the foundation of his faith, that he was a great sinner and that Jesus was a great savior. Well, I'd change that and I'd say is. Uh, What thoughts would you want to characterize at the end of your life? And they have a verse for today. King David spoke of this, describing the happiness of an undeserving sinner who was declared to be righteous. Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who sin no longer counted against them by the Lord. Romans 4, 6 through 8. There you go. Good stuff on John Newton. And I apologize. I don't know my Roman characters. You get me above uh, uh, 10 and it starts getting a little confusing. And then I know V is this and then you got M and C and D. And it's, it, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I used to know them really well and it's, it's been years. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to uh, uh, be in Romans chapter 9, verse 2 today. And we got to pray to get started. But um, uh, just so you all know, I had a real high honor on... Uh, uh, yesterday, yesterday. Gosh, it, I got up so early this morning that it seems like uh, it's two days ago, but I got to baptize every, those of you who are online at any time or another, you probably see the name Nance. She's mm-hmm. she's always posting something on the uh, YouTube videos and, and the streaming online. Well, her and she and her husband came to uh, Sarasota yesterday and I got to baptize them out at Turtle Beach. So mm-hmm. that was a very nice thing. Thank the Lord for that. And um, they... Uh, they will be here for a couple more days before they leave. And uh, Paul is, uh, I talked to Elaine yesterday, and he was he was just not doing really great yesterday. And uh, so he's, he's still struggling. His strength has not come back, but he did eat breakfast in the morning. And um, so anyway, uh, other than that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the chance to come to you and to pray for those who are in need. Uh, Graham over in Scotland also, I heard from him, and he's not doing well as also. And so we pray for him and for Paul and uh, Nick out in California, who is struggling daily with his own affliction. And we certainly pray for anybody else out there that is having their difficulties in whatever capacity, not just health, but in whatever capacity, that you would be with them and strengthen them. And we thank you for the chance to meet here in this church and to be able to uh, uh, open up your word and share it. And we thank you for those that are online that are uh, with us. And we would pray that they would be edified, built up in their faith, and that they would understand that this is the word of God that we're reading, that you have spoken through it, and that we're obligated to it, and that we should apply it to our lives properly in the right context and uh, knowing that that uh, where we stray, we are sinning. So help us not to do that, to have sound doctrine. And I would pray that if I'm wrong in any precept, that that would be made clear to those who listen so that they would be able to correct that in their own lives and not just trust in failing uh, uh, 
uh, commentators of any caliber from the past or of today that we would uh, want to pursue you and not just the one opinion of a single person. So, Lord, we thank you. We give this uh, time to you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's see here. Romans 9, verse 2 is where we're at. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay, let's see here. This is a continuation of the previous half of Paul's thought. He had stated that he was speaking the truth and that his conscience bore witness in the Holy Spirit to this fact. Okay, and then I spent an hour or more talking about the state of Israel and why it is the way it is. And uh, so, uh, just as a reminder, we're talking about Israel and their relationship with the Lord and how the church fits in. That is Romans 9 through 11. So if you missed that um, talk in the last, it was two weeks ago, but if you missed that, the Romans 9 one, I would recommend that you would watch that so you would understand why I believe what I believe concerning that. And uh, Paul himself is... Um, uh, it was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah okay. Osama. Was right. Yeah, Osama. Yeah. That's right. So uh, I saw you talking, and I thought maybe I was wrong. Well, I had a but, thing. Yeah. Anyway, so here we go. Um, uh, he, he's uh, stated that he was speaking the truth, and his conscience bore witness in the Holy Spirit to this fact. That was Romans nine one, and that's all we got through two weeks ago. So his heart truly had great sorrow and continual grief. The reason for this pain will be explained as this chapter unfolds. And as he writes his great dialogue on the state of Israel during this time of their rejection of Christ Jesus. And as I said, I say this because I believe that they will no longer reject Christ Jesus at some point. I had somebody sent me a commentary from that guy Rick Wiles out in, uh, I talked about him, True News. And uh, I brought him up in a prophecy update and caused all kinds of grief. But he's he's completely anti-Zionist. He doesn't believe that... that uh, is, Israel has a place in the world, and uh, this commentary that this lady sent me, I only listened to the last portion of it, but he's saying that <clears throat> our president is being misled by evangelical Christians that oh, that uh, support the state of Israel, and he's going to get us into uh, World War III with you know the choices he's making, which shows a complete denial of the sovereignty of God, because if World War III is coming, it's coming anyway, regardless. And if that is a part of the uh, plan, and if that's true what he's saying, then it doesn't matter. And if it's not true what he's saying, then it doesn't matter. The Lord is sovereign, and he is going to deal with each person according to uh, his will, and in the end, the world is going to do exactly what it's going to do, which he knew long before he created anything. I believe that Israel has a place in the world, that they will continue to have a place in the world, and that Jesus is returning to them. He's not returning to the church. The church will be with him when he returns. That's what I believe. So if you don't believe that, you can click off now because that's what you're going to get for the next three chapters. I just want to make sure that that's understood in advance <clears throat> because it is what the Bible teaches. That it's not an incorrect doctrine. And anybody that cannot look at the state of the world today, the nation of Israel in the land today, and not see biblical prophecy from especially Ezekiel 36, 37, and coming soon to a 38 near you. If they can't see that, they have presuppositions that they are, they're blind. They're unwilling to stand back and say, I was wrong, and I'm going to accept what God is doing in the world. So we'll go on. <clears throat> the reason for this pain that Paul uh, has will be explained as the chapter unfolds, okay? And uh, what Paul shows us here 
And what we will find throughout the New Testament is that there is truly a time for grief. Okay, he's saying I have grief continually. Well, we know that's true. And so, you know, people will write against Paul saying something like that, like, uh, you know, he's somehow uh, uh, saying something wrong. Well, that's not the case. It's there is a time for grief. And that is actually stated in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three. So I'm going to take you there very quickly. Psalms. uh, Let's see here. Ecclesiastes right here. Chapter three. And uh, hang on. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Everybody remember the song by the birds? Mm-hmm. To everything. Yeah, well, they got that right out of the Bible. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. So, well, he's saying right there that you can have grief right that's just it's natural and paul had a state of grief and that state of grief in paul actually is still alive today because they still have not called on christ this is paul's heart regardless of the fact that paul is dead he is in a state of grief because of israel and that is carried on i'm not saying that paul is grieving right now that's not at all what i'm saying i'm saying that he was in a state of grief when he died and that continues to this day. Someday that day will be behind us. I don't need to go any further. That was the one I wanted to get to was Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. There's a time for everything in life. So at the same time as bearing his grief, Paul is also filled with joy continually. That's found in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4, right? So he can have grief and he can have joy at the same time. And we can have our life compartmented like that. I mean, there are times where we're absolutely miserable about one thing, and yet, you know, your daughter's getting married the next day, and you're happy about that. So you can have these things. And so there's nothing wrong with Paul to write in the book of Romans, as some scholars have written, that he has grief in his life. Okay? There's no contradiction between him having joy continuously and grief in his life. All right? So from this, we learn that there is room for both states in the heart at the same time and that there's nothing wrong or deceptive with it okay and the reason why i'm saying that obviously i'm saying that because there are scholars out there that write these things and if you ever go to a commentary like that you say well how do i respond to that well that's why i'm giving you that commentary is because that kind of stuff is just nonsense people have not thought their own life through and they haven't thought that just because paul is an apostle and he's writing the word of god He's a human being, and he's allowed to write his feelings, just as Jeremiah did, just as, you know, uh, other prophets and other apostles did as well, all right? So, our lives can be filled with joy, immeasurable, at the prospect of eternity with Jesus, and yet broken at the unsaved status of those we love, and that's probably the case with several of us here. Paul shows us that this is so, and therefore we can confidently live in the same manner without belying the joy of our salvation okay life application i know it was a short little commentary but it's a short little verse there's nothing wrong with grieving in fact it would show a failing in us if we didn't grieve over the lost everybody should remember that if you're not grieving over the lost people of the world and that includes people that you might despise like our former president all right we should be grieving that he is lost and we would be happier that he would come to the lord now I, I know that it was very difficult for me to pray for him. It was very difficult for me to pray for him. And sometimes I would say, Lord, I pray for his salvation. And that would be the end of my prayer for him. Because I just, I, I, the things that he did, not just against 
our own country, which is, you know, obviously this is our country and we want to support it, but the things he did against the morality of this world, the murdering of human lives and talking about uh, making it okay to uh, have um, postnatal abortions. In other words, the, the child is born and you can still execute it. And he said that it ought to be allowed up to two years of age. I mean, that kind of stuff is absolutely insane. How do you get out of the depths of your soul and pray for somebody that would have that attitude about human life, right? But, you know, that's just my little comment about that type of thing is that these things are possible. So uh, we should grieve over the lost, even people like that. Let your heart be broken for that which breaks the Lord's heart. Yes. You didn't read that Second Corinthians 7.4, but that's a good one. No, well, let me re- go ahead then, read it. Oh, all right, 2 Corinthians 7.4, he told me that's a good one. And, uh, well, that's why I cited it, and I thought, you know, I, I'm glad somebody went to it, because sometimes I, I like to read all the verses, but sometimes I think, you know, we're just going to go on, and uh, I'm glad you did that. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4 says, um, uh, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with all comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. So here's Paul having all of these trials, and so are the Corinthians, and yet he is absolutely exceedingly filled with joy. So mine says affliction. Affl- yeah, like that's affliction. right, affliction. Same, yep, yeah, same idea though. But filled with joy and affliction. Joy and affliction. How do you do that? How do you pull that out of yourself? But you know, it, it's possible. And uh, I, I will tell you something. I have seen somebody that. I don't know how strong his faith is. I have no idea, you know, and unless he came into this church someday on a Sunday and gave a uh, talk during the prophecy update, I would know, have no idea until I could talk to him personally. But I know somebody that has shown literally joy and affliction over the past 12 months, and that is our president. He has, that is a man that has taken more abuse than any person that I have ever imagined in the White House. I don't think anybody has ever taken the abuse that that guy's taken, and yet he gets up there and he is filled with joy every time he speaks. He's just, he gets up there and it's, I'm not going to let you people rob me of my joy. Now, maybe he lays, lies in bed at night and he's, he's he's stewing over things. I don't know. If he was, but, we'd see the tweets. Oh, yeah, we'd see the tweets. There's no doubt about it. But I can tell you, when he speaks to the nation, yes. it is always precise. It yep. is always uplifting. He is a man that is here to lead. And I, I, I'm very thankful for that. So even our president, who, like I say, may not be the world's greatest Christian at this point, is a developed person. Yeah. And I would hope that as uh, did anybody see his uh, 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 conference about uh, the ending of the uh, individual mandate on Obamacare? He had a conference and he asked um, Ben Carson, who's at the table with him, he said, would you pray for us today? And uh, the uh, press, he said to the press, he said, you guys should stay. He said, you probably need this more than anybody else, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Right, and so Ben Carson did, even though he's a Seventh-day Adventist, he, he gave a very good prayer, and um, I, I could not believe the rudeness of the media as he was praying to stand there clicking their cameras, click, click, hundreds oh of them. And I'm thinking, you know, a man is praying, you stop what you're doing. Yes. It doesn't matter if you need another photo. You've got plenty of photos coming, but... I have no respect for those people at all. If I was Trump, I would have said, you've, you've done that for the last time. You are excluded from all of our things. I don't want you around me anymore because of showing a disrespect to the God of creation that you're praying to. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling, I, I have it in me to write him a note and say, you know what, you should not tolerate that. 
you should not allow people to interrupt a prayer to the Creator. So, and I, I may get that out to him tomorrow if I have time, but it's just been eating Jimmy at didn't me. didn't come for dinner at my house either. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, got, got to go. He invited him to dinner, and he hasn't he hasn't responded yet. So, okay, uh, nine verse three. Go ahead. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Has anybody felt that way about their own family member? Yeah. That you know you've got somebody that you love so much that you say, Lord, why don't you just trade my salvation for them? I, you know what? I, 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 I can tell you that there are many people in this world that have had the same thoughts. And people, this is another verse that scholars say, well, this is ludicrous and blah, blah, blah. And absolutely not. If you have a passion for somebody or some group of people or whatever, you would be willing, just like the Marine, jumping on a grenade to give your life for them. And uh, so that, that kind of commentary just goes nowhere with me. Anyway, 9-3. Here we have the explanation for Paul's comments in verses 1 and 2, which stated that he was being truthful in Christ and that his conscience bore witness in the Holy Spirit concerning his sorrow and grief. And what was the reason? It was for the sake of his fellow countrymen according to the flesh. What does that mean? Jews. Jews. He is a Jew. He is of Israel, and he is grieving for his people, the Jewish people of Israel. All right? Paul wrote this. Nothing changes doctrine-wise in the Bible. Okay, these Christians for the past 2,000 years, and in particular today, that have a beef against Israel, have not sat down and thought about the heart of the apostle that wrote these letters, and it is trying to convey that same heart to the people of the world. Okay, I, I just don't understand how somebody can be so adamantly belligerent against them. And it's like Islam, you know, I, we have Usama that comes in and speaks against Islam, and people. You, you know, you look at uh, after he does a video and you got all these little, uh, really? yeah, people doing a thumbs down and he gets accosted for being anti-Islam. Okay, that's fine. Islam is a religion. He is not anti-Muslim because mm -hmm. a Muslim is a human being. He's a follower of Islam, but his purpose is to show the falsehood of Islam because he wants to convert the people. And the only way that you are ever going to change somebody's mind is to show them where they are wrong. Okay, that's just how it works. And so he has a mission, and that is to speak against the false religion of Islam. Okay, and his goal is to get people out of that or other people to not go into that. All right, that is his intent and that is his purpose. I sat in back here with him last week and we talked for a little while, and that was one of the things that he conveyed to me. He doesn't hate Muslims. He does not follow their religion, and he would have a heart to get them out of that. Well, Paul's heart was to get the Jews out of, you know, I stay, say Pakistanians. I don't hate the people, but what they are putting forth in the world is a lie. Then I'm not going to call it anything other than what it is. It's fake, and that's why I say Fakistan, okay? People don't like that, and they send me angry emails, and you, yeah. should, you should be more loving and all this oh. kind of stuff. Listen, you call a spade a spade. Yeah. That's what you do in this life. And when you coddle to somebody in order to get them to like you, you're not doing anything. You're just waffling in your own convictions. Mm -hmm. So that's where I stand on those particular issues. But Coddling never, never changes. Never changes anybody's mind. It just strengthens their own view. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. So um, his Jewish brethren are the people that he's speaking of. It is the people of Israel. His burden was so great for them that he says, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ <laughs> for my brethren. It is astonishing how many scholars come to this verse and reject the plain sense of what Paul is saying. 
It is simple, it is direct, and it is to the point. If he could, he would trade his own place in Christ Jesus for the sake of the salvation of his people. Scholars simply cannot conceive that he means what he says, and they go into great and lengthy discourses on why he doesn't really mean this. Have you ever read any of those? No. No? Okay, Berg hasn't either, but I can tell you. Go ahead. Mine's... I looked this word up, and it's an anathema, just like in right. Galatians to be cursed. One. Absolutely, yeah, I, I would have myself accursed for the sake of my people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the verb uh, Paul uses for "I could wish" is "euchomen." It is in the imperfect tense, indicative mood, and middle or passive voice. The translation "I wish" or "I could wish" is exactly what he is saying. Not "I did wish" or "I would," but or for any other forced translation. Paul truly meant what he said, just as Moses meant the same thing after Israel's great sin of idolatry at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. In fact, I'll take you there and we'll read that. Exodus 32. It's the same thought that Moses gave. Paul is like the second Moses. There's so many parallels between the two of them that for them to say, well, Moses meant it and Paul didn't, is showing a, what's the word, naivete on the the love of Paul for his people. He was a Jew. He wasn't a Gentile. And just because we read the Bible and it seems like, oh my goodness, the uh, the uh, New Testament is written to Gentiles. Well, Paul must have rejected his people and he doesn't mean it. Of course he meant it. So here's what he said. Um, 32, let me see, next page. Uh, uh, now it came to pass on the uh, next day, verse 30, that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Okay, same thought. Same thought with Moses, same thought with Paul. Moses had a speech defect. Paul had a speech defect. You get the, the the same parallels of these people. Paul says, I'm not eloquent with words, okay? That means that he's got a speech defect of something. He slurs or he doesn't think on his feet or whatever it is, but he had this particular issue. Moses had an issue as well. So we have these parallels between these two men. One is bringing in the, uh, the uh, covenant with the Lord and the people, and he's bringing in the new covenant to the Gentile people of the world. So... There's these wonderful parallels. Hello, Pat. How are you? Paul was fully aware that one cannot take the place of another in eternal damnation. He knew that. You know that. I know that. We can't go trading places with people. All right. However, it did not change the feelings that he had concerning the matter. And that is what he is writing about in his heart. This is the reason for invoking the name of Christ and the witness of the Spirit in the first two verses of the chapter. He's making adamant proclamation. Christ is my witness, Holy Spirit, this is what I wish could happen. He's not lying, he's not making anything up, all right? The person who truly understands the state of the afterlife for those who, ref- who fail to receive Christ's gift is then impelled by the highest sense of responsibility to share that message. And his heart should be so broken for their state that they would likewise be willing to take their place rather than to see them perish. Okay, I was sitting here with Burke earlier, uh, before we got started today, and uh, he said that uh, he was talking to a person that sells knives out at the mall, and he said uh, he said he went and asked him, "Are you a believer?" 
And he said the next, what, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, they just talked about the Lord. And he said it was so refreshing. Oh, wow. and, but my thought wasn't about that guy. My thought was about Burke. The first thing he did, he asked him, are you a believer? That should be the first thing that we do when we encounter somebody is, you know, or if we, it's not the right time, they're working or something, because you don't want to witness to people while they are working. That's not an appropriate time to do it. Okay. But there are certain times where you just can't and you wait for the right time, but that ought to be right on your heart is to immediately say, can I tell you about Jesus? Right. And it just ought to be what we should be doing. If you don't, don't uh, have a chance when you're talking at the uh, uh, table at IHOP, then leave a track because there's plenty of tracks there and we're getting low and we'll get some more ordered. But, you know, that's what these things are for. So anyway. Question. Yes. Is, uh, okay, John wrote Revelation. Revelation. Okay. What would, did you think that Paul knew of that writing? No, that was written much, much later. Yeah, that was written, uh, they believe that it was written 80s or 90s. Okay. okay. Now, unless you're a praetorist, okay, <laughs> if you're a praetorist and you believe that uh, uh, the church has replaced Israel, then you would want to, you know, normally you always want to have texts dated as early as possible because the closer it is to the time of Christ, the more reliable it would be considered to be. If it was written 300 years later, then you know that that wasn't an eyewitness. But in the case of the book of Revelation, which is pretty well established that it was written later, the praetors would want to say that it was written earlier. Why would they do that? Because then everything would tie together neatly, and they say, well, they all conspired. Well, no. Uh, the reason why is because A.D. 70, the, oh, the Empire, temple was dropped. destroyed, right. right? And because the temple was destroyed, they could say that this was prior to that, and that then justifies their view on praetorism, that the book of Revelation is fulfilled. Oh. Okay? And everything in Revelation is fulfilled. It has nothing to do with future Jewish people, etc. etc. Does everybody understand that? Yeah. Right. Now, you have hyper-praetorism, which says that Christ actually returned in A.D. 70. It's done. Everything in the Bible is fulfilled. And that's why it's the one view of the praetorists, which is actually heresy. And I've said this many times at the Lord's table, is because when we take the Lord's Supper, we do it to remember Christ's death until he comes. That's right. So to say that you are a hyper-praetorist, you are also a hyper-heretic. Okay. Now, using the word heresy and heretic is something that people throw about way too often. Yes. Way too often. It will affect people's salvation. It is a heresy, okay? If it affects the nature of God, it is a heresy. But believing in mid-trib or post-trib, whatever, that's not a heresy, okay? If it doesn't affect their salvation, it is simply a doctrinal issue. So be very careful when you use the word heresy. But to say that a hyper-praetorist is a heretic, and a hyper-heretic at that— is because he is denying the literalness of this word, which is a heresy to deny the literal, uh, that this is the word of God, because they're over there taking the Lord's Supper for absolutely no reason at all. Then the Lord gave us two ordinances which we are expected to observe, baptism and the Lord's Supper, okay? Praetorism is not a heresy. They believe that the book of Revelation is fulfilled. We have no future prophecy left, blah, 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 except... Christ is returning again. And so they get away with being insanely bad doctrine at the same time as not being heretics because they do believe that Christ is literally returning someday. But that is after the church has made everything really great on this earth, okay? <laughs> after the church has done the work and we have this paradise that is described in the Old Testament, Christ is going to come back and say, 
thank you for doing this for me. Okay, it is a very skewed view on the world, especially with the way that the church has completely fallen away, especially with the fact that Islam is on the ascendancy throughout the world, especially with the fact that Israel is back in the land, which was never considered before. The blinders are on very tightly over these people. R.C. Sproul, who died last week, was one of them. Yeah. Oh, she didn't know. She just about lost her cookies just now. My mother just about lost her cookies. Yes, he died last week. And um, as I said to Jim at Mission Work on Saturday when we were meeting, I said, or maybe he said it to me, or maybe we said it to each other at the same time, now he knows where he was wrong in his doctrine. Uh, yes. And we're all going to be in the same boat. That's right. We're all going to be in the same boat. I will someday meet the Lord, and I will know every point of doctrine that I was incorrect in. But I am not incorrect that Israel has a purpose in the future and that that is being effected in the world right now. He was wrong, okay? So there's, there's a giant difference in that, but he was not a heretic, okay? Uh, Jim Dobson with, uh, was focused on, focus the on the family. He's a big guy. He's not any longer, but... He always said that we're going to make the world better so the Lord can come. Right. So that means he's a traitorist. That is crazy. That's absolutely crazy thinking. He had a lot of good stuff that he was doing. No, that's right. And so does R.C. Sproul. And that's why I cite him when he does something right and when he does something wrong. We've already gone through election, and he was completely wrong on election. Remember all the ducks there? One of those was R.C. Sproul. He was the second one, okay? He was totally incorrect. We do have free will, and he's finding that out right now. That's fine. And where I am wrong in things or where you're wrong, we're all going to find that out. That's why I say don't just listen to one commentator. Don't just check the Bible, read the Bible, ask the Lord to lead you in passive righteousness for his namesake. Don't just say, well, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going I'm to believe what Hal Lindsey said in 1980 about the late great planet Earth. Maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong, okay? But... That's what we do is we search out the word and we ask the Lord to lead us, okay? Anyway, um, uh, the highest sense of responsibility that we should have to impel us is to give the message of Christ. And Paul's heart, or his heart, the person that's doing that, should be so broken for their state that they would likewise be willing to take their place rather than see them perish. If you don't feel that way, then why would you even bother telling them about Jesus? If they're on their way to perdition and you don't care enough that you should take their place in order for them to go to heaven, then there's probably a little bit of a disconnect, okay? You don't have to like the person, but you have to love them. That's what the Lord expects of us. We don't have to like everybody, and there's people I do not like, but in Christ, I should love everybody, okay? So, as we move through chapters 9 through 11, we will see Paul's thoughts on Israel, both in his present and into the future. When one sees the church as replacing Israel, which we were just talking about, then, of course, they would try to force a translation other than what Paul clearly intended. But when we see that their rejection of Christ is not, it is not the end of the story for them, Paul's words make all the more sense. Okay? Life application, how broken is your heart for the lost around you? And not just those of whom you love or are close to, but those with whom you have no affiliation at all except the bond of humanity. When we look at ourselves as sinners saved by grace, then how can we not look at those around us and feel the pain of a broken heart at their fallen state? How can we do it? Okay, verse 9-4. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory. 
the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Okay, it all belonged to Israel. They had the whole golden table and they sold it off, right? They were like Esau selling his uh, birthright for a bowl of stew. Verses 4 and 5 now describe Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, mentioned in verse 3. In these verses, nine terms are used to describe them. First is Israelites, the direct blood descendants of Jacob who became Israel. Okay, this includes the following sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Also included are uh, Joseph's, Joseph. thank you, Joseph's two sons who are Manasseh and, Manasseh and Ephraim. That's right, okay? These are the people of Israel. Israel is not the church, though there are Israelites in the church. And the church is not Israel. It is speaking of a separate working of God during a particular dispensation. He wouldn't be writing these words right now if, if, if the church had been repeated. If the church had replaced Israel, if Israel had been replaced by the church. Does everybody understand that? He's writing about his people, his countrymen. He could not write what he wrote if the church had replaced them. He wouldn't even bother. Okay? He would say, you are Israel. You are my focus. You are what I am going to be completely and solely consumed with. And he was. Don't get me wrong. He was consumed with them. He was focused on the Gentiles because he was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. But the words that he writes about Israel, he could not write if, in fact, the church had replaced Israel. He never even alludes to that. That is a complete fallacy. It is completely bad handling of Scripture. Please understand that. If you disagree, once again, click off because that's all you're going to hear for the next two and a half or two and three quarter uh, chapters is that Israel is not the church, although there are Israelites in the church. Now, one thing that I did not include in this which is a, a truth, is that, uh, and I'll bring it up in a sermon in a few weeks, but, um, oh, I'll bring it up in this week's Prophecy Update as well. So when we get to that part, you can take a 30-second nap. Um, that is the people of Israel, is the people that descended from those 12 tribes plus the two sons of Joseph, which are, you know, there's 12 tribes. You'd have to go back and you'd understand it if you watched the sermons that I did on the establishment of Israel through the book of Exodus. Okay, but there's another group of people who are included in that uh, group of people. Who is it? Anybody know? Because I said the direct blood descendants of them. But there is a group of people that's actually included in them. And this is important to understand because the Bible uh, specifically says how you become like a native of the land. It's it's explicit. Okay. What? Yeah, well, they're, they're proselytes, but it, it tells exactly how you do it. And I, it's going to take me a second for this to uh, find it. And it says, um, here it is. It's uh, Exodus 12. I'm just going to start in verse 43. And I want you to listen to this, okay? Because Israel is direct blood descendants, but there is a provision that anybody could have joined them. Oh, okay. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Anybody that's not Israel shall eat of it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, he then he may eat of it. They've become a part of the household. They've been circumcised according to the uh, Genesis 17. They're uh, allowed in there. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. They're not a part of the household, okay? In one house it shall be eaten. You shall carry not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. 
all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you, a stranger means a foreigner, somebody that is not of Israel, and wants to keep the Passover. Now, this is for all time. This isn't just Exodus 12. This is the Passover instructions for people to eat the Passover with Israel. It says, want to keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Okay, so that is a provision. It does. It, eventually, they have become a person native of the land. They will marry in with the people of Israel, and eventually the blood will be all over anyway. Okay, but I want you to understand that somebody that comes into the group of people known as Israel, and they observe that right, right there, that's all the Bible levy, levies on them, they shall be uh, termed as native of the land. And that's also, believe it or not, after the uh, tribulation period, in the book of Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 40 or 41, somewhere right in that area, is there is a provision, maybe later, it might be 47. Um, it, it's in the 40 through 47 where he's talking about the, um, the temple and all the things that will go on in the millennium. He says that anybody who is left in the land at that time shall be reckoned as a native of the land. So the Lord is going to allow anybody, and that means the people that are there now called the Fakistinians, that when this is all said and done, if they're alive at the end of this time, they will be reckoned as a, a native of the land. That doesn't hold true now. They are not counted, and they are not allowed to have that land uh, that belongs to God given to them. And that's why the trouble is going to come on the people of the world. But understand that you did not have to be of direct blood descendant to be grafted in. We have an example of that in which book of the Bible? Ruth, right? Ruth came in. She was a Gentile, and she came in among the people, right? So we have examples there. We have other people that were uh, brought in as well. But that's an important thing to understand because when I bring up the prophecy update on Saturday, Sunday, I'm not going to talk about it now, but there was a group of people that were actually in the land of Israel, and they were given a this option of Exodus chapter 12, and they were assimilated into Israel. And then guess what happened in AD 70? They were dispersed with Israel. Okay, and I'm making a point about this because it's something that way, way many prophecy followers, confused Christians will say something about this group of people and they will use it to justify why Israel has no right to the land today. So I'll talk about that on Sunday. I'm going to get away from uh, articles more than uh, I normally do in order to make this point. But it's something that if you're confused about this, it's really important to get that cleared up. You were given one directive in Exodus chapter 12, and if you followed through with that, you were deemed as a native of the land. You were considered native, okay? So that's very important to remember, and the reason why I'm making that point bears on what I will talk about on Sunday, but it also bears on what Paul is writing about here because of the people that deny what I'm talking about on Sunday, okay? That's why I'm getting into that. I don't want to give it away now, but um, uh, just pay attention and uh, you'll learn something. And you can deny it if you want, but I didn't, one, write that instruction in Exodus 12, and I also believe that recorded history has a validity that we should follow through with it, and there's something recorded in history that tells us who the people of Israel are that are back in the land today. That's the point I'm making. Okay, so um, that was Exodus 32, 31, and 32. He wanted to be cut off from his people. And, uh, oh, I'm in uh, verse 4 now. I'm sorry, I was going back to uh, verse 3. Anyway, so um, the second group of people, you have the Israelites that I just mentioned. Second uh, description of them is to whom pertain the adoption, okay? God adopted this group of people, 
bringing them into a covenant relationship and calling them um, Segula in the Old Testament, a special group of people, his own special people. Among other verses pointing to this is Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, which says, For you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. That word there, am segula, I'm sure that's the word. I, I, I could be wrong, so don't write it down. But anyway, above all the people on the face of the earth. Okay, so those are the adopted sons. Now, in Christ, we are adopted as sons of God. Okay, so we have something going on here. We already have something going on. But this is what Paul is writing about his own people. The next descriptor is the glory. Time and again, the glory of God was manifest to the people of Israel. It occurred in a pillar of cloud and of fire at the Exodus. It happened at the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And again, at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem at Solomon's time, the glory was manifest in particular appearances to select people as well, such as to the father and mother of who at his, the announcement of his birth. Old Testament. Oh, um, Yes, no. Oh, oh, oh. Samson. Samson, thank you. Yeah, see, everybody knew. As soon as they saw my giant muscle, they said, Samson, there you go. So, uh, yeah, it was his uh, father and mother, uh, Samson. Remember, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared first to the wife, and he gave her some instructions. She went to uh, the husband, and he said, well, who was this? Because he's starting to wonder what's going on here. And then he says, well, we'll see if we can get him to appear again. He appears again, and so he has a special appearance, and it was the eternal Christ. It was Christ the Lord who showed up in their presence, okay? Anyway, it's a wonderful story. Go back and read it. Um, so um, the glory was also manifest to Israel in another way. The radiance and glory of God was manifest to Israel in the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? John 1, 14. Let me read that to you. Does anybody know it offhand? No, 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 not one John. John, one John, uh, John one fourteen, and we beheld his glory. Oh, Come on. Okay, so I gave you 12. Yeah, that's all right. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full oh, of grace, grace and, and truth. truth. Okay, and he made his uh, tent and was, uh, tent. let me read it to you so that we get the entire thing properly. Um, John 6, anyway, it's the one that I used to have on the side of my truck when I, you know, my old truck, I had it right there, John 1, 14. Let's see, I miss it too, but it sure took a lot of gas. Oh, here it is, this is, I, I misquoted it too. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten full, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's it, we kind of threw three verses into one, but now we've got it out of the way. So they saw the glory manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? The next descriptor is the covenants. The covenant promises of God have come through this specially chosen line of people, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, who is Israel. The covenant at Sinai was directed to them and for them. David was given a covenant promise as well. Later, a new covenant was promised to the people in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It was not written to the church. The new covenant was written. Let me read it to you so you don't think I'm making this up because everybody, uh, everybody says, well, the new covenant is for the church. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are grafted in to the new covenant. And this is a huge problem that people read right over these words. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. At that same time, at the same time, 
31, 31. I got to get to the right verse there. Sorry about that. I was reading 31, 1. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The with the Israel. house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We are not Judah. Nobody in their right mind in the church would say, well, I'm the tribe of Judah, right? Because we're not. All right. That's obviously speaking of a group of people from Israel. Why would we say that the church is Israel then? Why would anybody do that? But they have to say stupid things like that in order to justify this. The new covenant was not made with the church. It was made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We are grafted into the commonwealth of that. Okay. We are not Israel. All right, there's, there's something going on, and it is not what you're going to hear in Reformed churches and Presbyterian and Lutheran churches, which say that we are Israel. We're not. Go ahead. My corrected saying, which I have, no covenant did God make with the Gentiles. No. All was Jewish. Yeah, they're, they're all with the yeah. Jewish people, right? Now, he did make a covenant that included the Gentiles when he spoke to Abraham, when he spoke the new covenant. We're included in that, but it wasn't made with us. That's right. It was made with the line that he had selected. They rejected him, and they are under the punishment of the old covenant until they come to Christ, okay? That is as clear as it could be, all right? Even though the old covenant, the law of Moses is annulled, it is obsolete, it is set aside, there are certain things that are still going on from that covenant for Israel. That's why the book of Hebrews comes after the church age epistles. Well, okay. you read in the Psalms, particularly, covenant-keeping God. Sure, he's a covenant-keeping God. He's not going to break. But once again, just so you understand, you can say that, and I can say that, I can say, well, then obviously he has a purpose for Israel. But a praetorist or a replacement theologian or any of these people that have these wacky ideas will say that pertains to us. He is keeping his covenant because we are Israel. You see, they, what they do is they take us and they just insert us into those promises. And that's why I talked about that for an hour and a half or an hour, however long it was, two weeks ago, is because I want you to understand why people think what they think. It doesn't matter what verse you pick out and you say, see how obvious it is? They will still say, it's obvious because we are Israel. Mm. That's why they come to this conclusion, is they have been taught that, and once again, I, I have to go back and I have to explain this so that you can grasp this. There was no Israel. There is an Old Testament, not an Old Covenant, the Old Testament, which has all of these promises that are going to come true in the world. But there's no people that it can be fulfilled in, so we must be that group of people. You see the logic, as long as you keep remembering why the church believed that. But now that we are in the modern times, now that Israel's back, now that the land has literally bloomed instead of symbolically blooming in the church, there's no reason to ever accept the church's misguided impression of Romans 9 through 11. But I want you to understand why that is the case. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them this. It doesn't matter how much evidence you show them, just like that nut job Rick Wiles with True News, and he's saying that this, this thing that the uh, uh, church is doing is wrong and we're we're not wrong. He is wrong because he's had this theology trained into him and he is unwilling to see God's hand in the Jewish people of today. Okay, we'll go on. I've said it. Just keep reminding yourself of that because when somebody says, how can they be so stupid? It's because that's what they believe for 2,000 years. And there is the point where pride steps in and pride says, my professor was right. And I was taught that and I am right and I'm not going to believe anything else. That's just the way of the world. So, But understand why people believe this. 
is because we are Israel. We have replaced that group of people. They are out. Okay, and they so they can claim all of these things, even though to you and me it seems nutty. Okay, so um, that's the uh, the covenants. As Jeremiah thirty one thirty one, it was instituted with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it was instituted and realized through the shed blood of a son of Israel, Jesus. He wasn't a Gentile. He's not a Gentile now, you know? And here's one thing that when you're talking to Jews, believe it or not, they honestly believe, they honestly believe that Christ is his last name. I've had Jews say to me, I thought that was his last name. We say Jesus Christ. And you have to tell them all Christ means is Messiah. It's exactly the same word. They both mean anointed one. If you're going to talk to a Jew, it's probably better to say Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah, or Jesus the Messiah. And they say, I don't understand. Well, that's what Christ means. They mean exactly the same thing. It's just the Hebrews, Mashiach. The Greek is, um, uh, I'm not saying, oh, Christos, thank you. Uh, duh. Anyway, so you've got those two words, and one means, uh, uh, they both mean the same thing, the anointed one. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, let's see here. So, um, Jesus was the son of Israel. When you speak to a Jew, Make sure you, they understand that he was not, um, Christ is not his last name. And another thing about Jews that they are under the misinterpretation of is that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. Okay? Yeah. When I, I witnessed to some, uh, I, I, uh, for college, I had to uh, interview people of another faith. Okay? And uh, they had to be a like a preacher or somebody up in their, their uh, you know, their religion, not just a believer, but they had to be a, a teacher of the faith. And I wanted to do the Jews. I mean, that was just me. So I called the local rabbi over at Chabad, and he wouldn't talk to me. As a matter of fact, none of them would. But he called back and he said, would it be okay if you spoke to a member of my congregation? And I said, well, let me check. And they said, he, they said he's uh, been in the congregation for eons. He and his wife are Holocaust survivors. And so, uh, uh, and I got approval to talk to them. So I went over down there and I talked to them. And uh, I promised in advance, I will not in any way, I'm here to interview you about uh, your faith, and that is what my assignment is, and I was made to promise, you're not to proselytize them in any way, okay? And so um, I stuck to it, and I interviewed them, what they believed in their faith, and I, you know, for my report, and then I thought, I still need to talk to them about Jesus, but... I can't because I'm not going to be a liar about what I've said to them. Yeah. So after we finished, I said, I am now finished. I've got everything I need, and I so very much appreciate it. I said, now I want to know, do you have any questions about my faith? So I'm not breaking any, any bond. I'm not breaking any trust. Okay? And they said, yes. Um, why do you believe in the Trinity? And I said, and I started talking about it. And I, I, I brought in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and he immediately said, no, 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 no. That's not the Trinity. And I said, yes, that's the Trinity. That's the Trinity. He says, no, Mary is Father, Son, and Mary. They had been taught by their rabbi in all of their places where they had been that the doctrine of the church was Father, Son, and Mary. They had been lied to because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is an infinite difference between Father, Son, and Mary. Okay? And so there, it was purposeful. It wasn't so, so you need to make sure when you talk to a Jew that you understand that they have been completely misinformed about many things. His name isn't Christ. That is his title, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and there are other things that they asked about. And I said, you know, that's just simply not right. This is what we believe. And then I was able to explain to them the atonement of Jesus and all that without proselytizing them because I promised I wouldn't, but they asked the question. Okay. And so, um, uh, well, yeah, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta get your foot in there somehow, but anyway, and they were not good observant Jews. I can tell you this at Passover, they would take all of their bread with yeast and they would put it in the freezer. <laughs> so, you know, they, they violated their own scriptures, right? But anyway, it says it's not to be found in the house. But it, 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 just so you know that these are things that they've, another thing that you will never see a Jew uh, know about is Isaiah 52, 13 right. through 53, 12. Those are the forbidden passages. They're not read in the, the um, synagogue. They're not discussed. And so if you want to make a basis for talking to a Jew about Jesus, you might bring in Isaiah 52 and say, this is what your word says. And if you want to see a very, very good presentation of that, you can go online and there is, uh, you'll have to search around to find it because I don't know the name of it, but there is a video of a Jew in Israel who goes out into the streets oh, yeah, and he, yeah, you yeah, have yeah, seen yeah. it. It is marvelous. Really he speaks to the people of yeah. Israel about the Messiah but he doesn't tell him he's going to speak about the Messiah. He says, I want to read you something. I want to read you some words, and then I want you to tell me who this is who speaking this about. Is and so he read Isaiah 52 and 53. And every one of them that he interviewed said, oh, that's speaking of Jesus, the, the, uh, the Christian guy. And he said, no, this is speaking of this. Isaiah wrote this, and this is from your scriptures, and it's speaking of your Messiah. And every one of them knew before he said that that it was speaking of Jesus. Okay. So that shows you, you have an in in order to talk to these people. You have a way of doing it, but you have to understand their presuppositions already in order to begin the process. Go ahead. Z-I-V. 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 I don't know what you're talking about. The guy on the street. I have no idea. I don't remember. He passed away a couple years ago. No, this was a young guy. This was a young guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know that one. Which Isaiah what? 52, well, Isaiah 53, that's what you put it in. Anyway, if you find it, let me know, and I'll tell people what it is. We'll go on for now. Um, the giving of the law is the next thing that Paul speaks of. This was a unique moment in history when God brought a single group of people near to himself, displayed his glory before them, and gave them a corporate body of laws which the people agreed to uphold. The law, being the fifth dispensation of God's workings in human history, was given to show God's righteous standards, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5. Obviously, nobody ever did the things of the law because every single Jew from, or Israelite from the time of the giving of the law right up until the time of Jesus died, and they did not come back out of the grave, with one exception and that is Jesus, okay? And since then, no other Jews have done the things of the law. They are all dead. The man who does these things shall live by them. Christ did the things of the law, and he lives by them. When we accept that, we will live because of him, not because of deeds of the law, okay? I can't wait until we get to the book of 1 Timothy, and we do that book in this class, because there is so much against this Hebrew roots movement in 1 Timothy that it is astonishing. There's a lot of it in Romans, too, but the people that are out there observing the law and saying that we need to do this and that in order to be pleasing to God are absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. If you just pick this book up and read it, I don't know. 
I don't know how people can get to those conclusions. I simply do not know. I see some guy in First Timothy online on Superior Word. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it every day. Absolutely. And we'll get a bigger font for you. I know the font's been small, but that's not my problem. That's the uh, WordPress, but we're getting that fixed by putting in a uh, uh, in addition. Okay, so. Um, the, it's the Yeshua project okay the Yeshua project just type in the Yeshua project and this guy will go out and do it and uh, uh, it's wonderful to watch because it's what nine Nine minutes minutes long very simple the Yeshua project watch it you'll enjoy it and you'll learn something okay so um, the giving of law the next is the service of God this is speaking of the temple service and functions which were performed by the priests and Levites for the people of Israel If you want to understand those rites and the things that they did in minute detail, I know a church that has been preaching on the book of Leviticus for the past um, uh, 40 uh, weeks. So it's been almost a full year now. All right. And if you want to know the book of Leviticus in detail, and it ain't boring, I can assure you of this. You know what? I can't tell you how pleased I am when somebody sends me an email. I got another one this week when they say, you know, I just thought, I'll see how those Leviticus sermons are. And they said, I couldn't believe Jesus is coming out in every single verse. They said, I've gone back and I've watched from the beginning. And every time I hear that, I think, thank the Lord. Mm -hmm. Somebody is realizing Mm -hmm. that it's not a book that puts you to sleep. It's not a book that will, will, you know, fill your mind with tedium and gore. It is absolutely marvelous what is found in the book of Leviticus. Absolutely marvelous. And if you want to know, send me an email. I will send you the name of the church that is doing this um, this uh, uh, series on Leviticus, and um, I'll give you the pastor's name. And if you have any problems with him, you can send him an email, okay? So anyway, um, that's the service of, the, the, of God. God's presence dwelt first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Sacrifices, offerings, and devotions were presented to him, serving him during the dispensation of the law. The law is done. They're not doing that anymore. It is going. They have seven more years granted to them under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, which is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It is an allowance. And once again, that is why the book of Hebrews comes after the book, uh, the books of Paul. That is why James comes. That is why Peter comes is because they are writing, believe it or not, even though they're writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion at their time, they probably didn't realize that they would be writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion 2,000 years later Mm -hmm. after the church age. But God put them in that order for a particular reason. I've done it before. The Bible itself, how it's laid out, shows you redemptive history. It shows you the pattern of what God is doing in redemptive history with an addendum to the the dispensation of the law, seven more years after the church age, which is reflected in also Revelation uh, 4, verse 2, all the way to Revelation 19, verse 10. It is all Israel in those chapters. And then you get back into uh, a mixing of the two and off into eternity. But great stuff. The Lord is really wonderful. He's put the word together, and um, that's the service of God. And then he speaks about the promises, Promises of blessings for obedience, of punishment for disobedience, of exile and return, of God's faithfulness, even through Israel's unfaithfulness. Such promises were made to and through this group of people. Okay, 
Blessings and curses. What chapter of the book of the Bible is that in? Deuteronomy 29 and 30, I believe. No, 28. But you're close. Mm -hmm. And then Deuteronomy 28, and it's also in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Chapter 26. You're very close. So you you guys are close. Leviticus 26 is the... And let me take you to something in there. I'll probably mention this again during the Roman series, but just in case I don't. Leviticus 26, I want to read you something about the blessings and curses, and I want to ask you to answer this question for me, okay? I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, in other words, um, I don't want to give you something and then train it into you. I want you to come to the conclusion, and if you do that, then I can't say that I have put in a presupposition into your head for later, okay? Um, first, chapter 26 of Leviticus, it says, don't do these things, don't do these things, don't do these things, and then it says in... Um, uh, you, uh, verse um, 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I shall give you the rain in its season. Okay, we're going to go on really quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and more blessings in that verse. And then he says, I will give you peace in the land and lots of stuff. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword and stuff. Verse 8, five of you shall chase a hundred and stuff. Uh, verse 9, for you will look favor- I will look favorably on you and make you fruitful, multiply, blah, blah, blah. So he's giving them blessings, okay? And then he says in verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments, okay, blah, blah, blah. Verse 16, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume you and stuff. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. Bad enough right there. I wouldn't mm-hmm. want any more than that, Okay. Going on, verse 18, and after this, if you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. What does that imply when you get to verse 18? And after this, if you do not obey me, then I will, what? Completion. No. Seven is the I want you to think this through. He told them what he's going to do if they don't listen. And he says, and after this. If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Except the seven years of tribulation, or what? What is it? I want you to keep thinking it through. You, that may be correct, but what? No? I read something, I think it's in Isaiah, where he said that seven years were... No, seven years is Daniel. He's reading... Okay, well, that, there you go. He's promised to punish them, yeah. right? Those first verses, one through... Well, I can't, don't have my glasses on, but we'll see. Okay, through 17, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Okay, so the first exile was for 70 years. It presupposes a second exile, and I didn't say it. So, I, in other words, he figured that out without me saying it. It presupposes in Leviticus 26 that there will be two exiles. Does everybody understand that now? Anybody that says that Israel of today does not have a purpose because they crucified Christ and they are out forever— has not properly read Leviticus 26 because it presupposes this many exiles. Not this many. The first exile was 70 years to Babylon. That's what Jeremiah said. And then Daniel in uh, Persia was reading the book of Jeremiah. And he says, Lord, 70 years. And that's when he gets into chapter 9. And he says, it's time for you to return us. But Verse 18, on down through here, presupposes a second exile. Very good. I'm glad you got that because I didn't want to be here all night, but I didn't want to say it because if I did, then you would have that in your head forever and you would, you know, in other words, it could be something that I introduced. I did not. 
So we don't we don't really recall what Jim said. We don't recall what Jim said. Forget what he said. He's wrong. Okay, there's only one exile. The Jews are out. I want you to understand that. Uh, please understand that that the Bible itself has told us that. And then that's the calculation which I've done before. I talked about somebody asked me for that calculation. Um, he said you talked about this in a prophecy update, and I want to know what you were talking about. If you don't remember, go back and watch prophecy update number eighty-eight. It's August of two years ago, I think, prophecy, or three years ago. Anyway, seems like prophecy, yeah, seems like yesterday, okay? Prophecy update number 88, and I talk about that. The first exile was 70 years, okay? The next exile, seven times seven is four, okay, it's Ezekiel chapter four is where you did the calculation. If I start now, we'll be here all night. I'll, I'll get into it, and I'll never end, okay? Go back and watch that prophecy update, and I will detail that. And I will talk about why Israel of today is back in the land at the time they are in, and it's absolutely perfect to the day. Okay, wow. God made no mistake. So anyway, go back and watch that. If you have more questions, then I can send you more information, or I we can, can talk about it or whatever. It, it's I, the one that I stood in front of the board. You weren't here. The camera was over there. I wasn't here because I did it alone. Here, I was oh. going up, up to help my dad. And so oh, okay. I, I did it in advance so that oh, it could be posted okay. while I was gone. I just can't so, believe you can remember that it was number 88. 88, new down. beginnings times two, you baby. Wrote it down. Okay, no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> the reason why I know that is because somebody emailed me yesterday and asked for it, and I went and looked for oh, it. There. But you think I'm smart? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's number 88, okay? Now, here we go. Um, let's see here. It's the one where I'm wearing the tie-dye T-shirt with the cross on it, and I'm standing here doing all the calculations and whatever. Anyway, that will that will help you understand that there is no doubt that there are two exiles of Israel, okay? The Bible itself presupposed it, okay? So anybody that tells you that the Jews are out, all you need to do is do what I did. Don't say there were it presupposes two exiles because if you do then they're going to say well it doesn't say that what you do is you do what i did and elicit it out of them because once they've said it it's done okay you know now and you'll never forget that because i elicited it out of you instead of putting it into you and that's probably the best way to handle people with bad doctrine is to talk around their bad doctrine and get them to admit something and then say see even you said that and they if they're not willing to think it through you can't help them, but you usually. Do you know that it is the shortest day of the year today? It's yes. the uh, uh, winter solstice. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, now you do. Little squiggle for your brain. It happened at about eleven forty-two today, something like that. Anyway, was uh, the, the actual solstice. But anyway, it's just our time here. What? That's not going to affect our time here at all. No, it might have been before eleven ten forty-two. It was right in that area between ten and eleven o'clock today. Anyway, we'll go on. Seconds off of our day or so. What does it take? Eleven seconds off. Yes, and then tomorrow it's going to start getting longer, and also the sun is going to start moving. And you know that because I take a sunrise photo every single day of the year, and so I can tell you what time of the year that photo was taken because then I've got thousands of them after doing this. Eight eight times of three hundred is eight times four hundred. No, I never recycle pictures. If I don't have one then you know i paint I like, in a, I, yes I, I know yeah I, I'll, I'll paint in a uh, sunrise if it's dark out what's that uh, I, i'm a great painter aren't i best artist in the world can, can you go to your site and get those uh, all the pictures just the pictures absolutely can. yeah and i've got them all in there if you have any you want i got them all in my computer and i can email you the high resolution original but yeah, if you go to the Siesta Key Sunrises site, you can go there and look at all of them. Not on my page because I break them down by year. 
but if you go to the Sunrise page, you can see all of them. They're just laid out. So, 2,920. 2,920. Okay, that's just a lot of Sunrise photos. Okay, so, yes. Uh, that was Exodus. Leviticus 26. Oh, Leviticus. Leviticus 26, yes. Okay, so the promises, that's the next one. Oh, wait a minute. Um, uh, I, I was in the promises, and I went to Leviticus 26 to show you the promises and the, the blessings and the curses. Okay, and the greatest promise made to them as well. He gave them all these promises. He gave them all of these, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to curse you, and all of these things. But the greatest promise made to them was the promise of the coming Messiah foretold in Genesis 3.15. Every Jew knew that this was coming. Okay, if you don't believe that, all you need to do is read the New Testament Gospels, and they all say, you know, they are you the Messiah? Even the Samaritans knew this, right? Mm -hmm. So they all knew this. This was a part of their heritage. It was a part of their culture. It was a part of their traditions. Our Christmas sermon, if you listen to Mary's words, there's no other conclusion. She knew that this was coming, okay? She didn't understand the process. She needed to be filled in on the details, but all of them understood that well, a Messiah was promised question, and they, they were the people. Oh, it's going to be Bethlehem after that's right. Even, that's right. The scribes, everybody knew it. They knew some of the details. They didn't have all of it. They didn't have all the information, but they knew that they were the people that this was going to happen. The faithful group of people all the way from the time of Adam are very meticulously recorded all the way down, and then you come to Abraham, and that begins the, the family unit. These other people were of the line, but they weren't the family unit so much. Kind of, you know, Noah was and each one of them, but there was a specific promise made to Abraham. And from Abraham, it went down, like I said, Isaac and Jacob, and they knew that this was coming. And eventually they knew that he would be from Judah. They knew all of these things. Okay. And these stories that seem so obscure when you're reading the Old Testament, you read the book of Ruth and you say, well, isn't that a pretty story? And isn't that that is there not just to be a pretty story. It's not just to show how a girl came into the people of Israel to show how good Israel is. That story was given to show every single detail that he picked. If you remember, if you watched those sermons or if you were hearing you listen to him, every detail was to show us that this has something to do with the coming Messiah. They didn't know that. But when you look at those, those the book of Jonah, right? Why would he have a, a story of a guy getting swallowed by a whale? It seems... It seems ridiculous, but when you look at the details, every single detail points to the coming Christ and his rejection by the people of Israel, right? It's as clear as it could be when you look at the details. When you see a story that doesn't seem to belong there, remember the one you asked me about? I just don't know that one, Elisha and the... Uh, uh, oh, the axe head? Yeah, the axe floating. He says, why was that in there? And I said, I'll get you an answer. And so it was like three or four months later, and I took a break, and we did that sermon in, from Kings. And you walked up after the sermon, and you said, oh, I thought you'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> anyway, I didn't forget about it. I just wanted to get the right time to put it in there. But, yeah, these obscure stories all point to the fall of man, the redemption of man, and the work of Jesus in getting it done. Okay? So that's um, the, the promises. And from Genesis 3.15 all the way on, and despite Israel's rejection of him, this Messiah has promised to return to this wayward and obstinate group of people when they finally call on him. Okay, here we go. I'm going to take you to a set of verses. I could quote them to you off the top of my head, but I'm not going to because I want to make sure I quote them without missing anything. Because when I read these words to you, there we go, one more. Who is he speaking to? 
Matthew 23. Jews. Hang on. Yeah, well, yeah, he said Matthew, but what does he say? What, what verse am I looking through? Oh, 37. Okay, here we go. Now listen to this. Jesus is speaking to a certain group of people, okay? He is not speaking to the church, okay? He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, is Jerusalem the church? No, that's in Israel, okay? How often I wanted to, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He said, I have been calling you all along. I've been trying to call you, and you're not willing. And he says, see, your house is left to you desolate, okay? That happened. It happened 30 or 40 years later. It happened in AD 70. Their house was desolate, okay? Done. The Jews are out. Oh, no, wait, there's another verse. For I say to you, who's he speaking to? To Jerusalem, the seat of government in the land of Israel. I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is up to Israel to call on Jesus for Jesus to return to planet Earth. It is not the church he is returning to. I am sorry. Read the verses yourself. He is coming back to Israel. Right. And even right? their presupposition that the church is placement. It's the impossible. Church, the church has already said that, haven't they? So yeah. why hasn't he? Absolutely. It is. It is. Sense. It makes no sense. He is returning to Israel. He's not speaking at all to the Jews or, or to the, the church. He's speaking to the Jews. He's very clear in what he says. And he is not returning to planet Earth until they call on him. And once they do, he will come and he will rescue them because they will acknowledge that he is Lord. And so, it ain't going to happen until then. We are going up to meet him in the air. Anybody that can't see that from those verses, because he ain't returning to the church, all right? He's returning for the church, but he's not returning to the church. There's a big difference. We are going to him, okay? He is coming back to this planet for them. That is what's the coming. context or, or where, where, but in the Catholic Mass, that verse is stated just before yeah. the, the communion. Yeah, and uh, let me tell you what, they, they, they are, once again, they are taking themselves and they are putting them where they do not belong. Right. Right. They do not belong. Once again, it's like the Peter thing, right? The Peter is specifically said to be said twice in the New Testament, the apostle to the circumcision, right? We aren't the circumcision, all right? It, it, I don't know how the Catholic Church can come to these things and the people swallow it they just they swallow it down and they believe it it's absolutely crazy anyway we've got to go on life application israel is a distinct group of people descended from the patriarch jacob the church is not israel and yet there are those from israel in the church mixing these categories will lead will lead will lead to faulty theology so do not mix these categories when somebody in a prophecy update, then there are several people that I hear about every single week. Oh, he's so good. I get tagged in, in posts with them on Facebook all the time. There are two or three of them that are out there, okay? They, they say, well, if you want to watch a good prophecy update, watch this guy, this guy, and this guy. I don't know why they include me because whatever, but they do. And one of them constantly is taking Matthew 24, and he's putting it into the church, that's what's called mixing dispensation. I'm not going to give his name because I'm not going to belittle him because he can be wrong about that. It's a point of doctrine. It's not a heresy, okay? I, I'm not here to belittle people. But if you hear somebody mixing dispensations, 
then you need to make sure that you don't assimilate what they are saying. Because when you do, that is why people think that the parable of the ten virgins is something to do with us. And when Jesus said, pray that you be counted worthy, that you may stand before the Son of Man, Christians get all worried. I hope that I'm worthy. I hope that I'm worthy. He's not speaking to us. We are worthy because of Jesus. We are worthy because of Jesus. We don't have to worry if we're worthy or not. We are unworthy as individuals, but we are in Christ. We are in Christ, and therefore we are worthy because of his merits. Do not listen to Prophecy Update people when they cite Matthew, Mark, or Luke in their prophecy and say this is pointing to the rapture, this is pointing to this, or this is pointing to that. That is mixing dispensations, and it is real faulty theology. But it's not a heresy. I'm not here to slam these people. But make sure that when you hear that, you disregard it. Don't email him because all he's going to do is argue back or you're going to waste his time, okay? if It's just wrong. It is wrong. And that's why we have so many people that are confused. Well, what about this? And what about that? He's not speaking to that. Just always ask yourself this question first. The first thing you should do when you're evaluating a passage in Scripture, the very first thing is, who is being spoken to? That's the first thing. And that is under the overall um, uh, category of, yes, it's a category of, you just said it, there's five of them, it's the last three. It is context. Who is he spoken to is under context, okay? That is context. There's a lot of things that you have to know for context, but the main one is who is being spoken to. Jesus is not speaking. Now, here's another problem is that when Jesus talks about uh, things that are going on, he uses the term church, right? Go take this to the church, and if they don't listen, guess what? He ain't talking to the church. That is, our translators have used the word church, and they've put it in there, okay? All it is is ecclesia. The word ecclesia is used of the Greek Old Testament of the people of Israel, right? Okay? The word ecclesia means a called-out body. So when you're reading the New Testament and somebody's put church in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they've done the wrong thing because he's speaking to Israel about their thing that's going on. He's not speaking to us about what's going on here. So just because the word church is in there doesn't mean that that's who he's speaking to. But that's a problem because these things were translated like um, uh, the King James Version and the New King James Version. They're translated by people that have got the impression that we've replaced Israel. And that's why this faulty theology is in there. Always ask yourself first, who is being spoken to, okay? Or who is being written to if it's written down. After that, then everything else should fall into its proper place. Paul is writing to Gentiles. And Romans is in Israel, right? Rome is in Israel? No. Okay. How about uh, Corinth? Corinth is in it's south of um, Beersheba, right? No. Okay. You've got um, Galatia. That's over by Tel Dan, right? No. Okay, how about, um, I, I said Corinth, Galatia, you've got Ephesus, you've got uh, Philippi, you've got, um, uh, what's another, Thessalonica, they're all in Israel, right? Oh. No, not one of them. He's writing to, what's that? That's right, Turkey, and they're over here, and they're over here. He's writing to people over there. And then when you get, uh, when you get uh, um, Timothy and Titus, he's writing about church matters in those places. Timothy is, one Timothy is written to Timothy while he's in Ephesus, okay? That is why we say, who is he writing to? Oh, he's writing to us. Okay, and you will not mix your just. Oh, now see, I was going to do one more verse, and we can't because I'm blowing so much wind today. But um, um, yeah, so uh, we'll go back, and we've got just a couple more minutes, so uh, we'll just talk. 
Um, mixing these categories will. It will lead to faulty theology, so don't mix the categories. When you see somebody in a prophecy update, cite that. Ignore it. That's what I recommend you do, okay? Listen to them. They're fine. They've got all kinds of great insights from all over the Middle East, and they've got insights about this and that happening in Russia and whatever. Great. But when you hear them speaking doctrine and they introduce those things, do that, okay? It is incorrect. The rapture is never mentioned anywhere until it left Paul's pen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, behold, I show you something that was revealed 2,000 years ago. No, he says, I show you a mystery. Okay. I have it, yes, go ahead. I'm very intrigued about mistakes. Oh, yes. We'll be there in, uh, don't worry, we'll be there in about um, 12 more weeks, 15 more weeks. More weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be soon. No, go ahead. What's your question? Well, you know, and I and will punish you. Get seven times for your sins. Yes. How do you how do you figure that he's that, talking about? That is Ezekiel chapter four. Well, it, we've got five more minutes. I'm just going to read you this, and I'm going to very quickly. I'm not going to get into it tonight. Watch prophecy update number eighty-eight. Okay. But I'll read you Ezekiel chapter four, and then you will begin to understand. Okay, Ezekiel four. And we didn't know this until after it happened. The Bible is not for predictive prophecy. It is for understanding prophecy fulfilled, okay? There is predictive prophecy, but we're not going to know the details of when it's going to happen, okay? Chapter 4, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city of Jerusalem. Lay a siege against it. Build a siege wall against it. Build it. This is the curses. I'm now going to destroy Jerusalem, okay? And I'm going to go on a little bit. It goes down. Um, this shall be a sign to the house of Israel. A sign is something that is telling them something is coming and it is going to be revealed in them or through them. Okay. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the number of years of their iniquity according to the number of days. He's on his left side for 390 days. You shall bear the house of the iniquity of the house of Israel, left side. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I've laid on you a day for each year. Always the Bible gives a day for a year. So you've got 390 and you've got uh, 40. Is that what I said? Yes. 40. Okay, so that is what? 390 is 40 is 430. That's correct. Okay, 430. They were exiled to uh, Babylon for how long? Seven. 70. How many does that leave from 430? Oh, it leaves you 360. Okay, very good. So you got 360. Now, you take 7 and you multiply it times 360 and you get 2,520 years, right? So you do the calculation and it'll take you from the original exile, um, uh, uh, 2,520 years, it will take you to 14 May of 1948. Okay, 907,200 days to the day 14 May of 1948. But Jerusalem fell 19 years after the exile, the first exile, okay? 19 years later. How long after 1948 is 19 years? What year is it? 1967, thank you. 7 June of 1967, Jerusalem was recaptured, okay? Prophecy fulfilled, but you understand how that works? Go watch the, uh, the uh, number 88, and that'll help you out with that. The Bible is very accurate, but... You have to go to Leviticus 26 to understand that. If you don't understand that there's two exiles and that he has given you the number of days that, or the seven times over punishment, and then you go to Ezekiel 4, you can come to the conclusion what God has done. And believe it or not, this is reconfirmed in Daniel chapter 
seven, I think it is. Same calculation comes out. Might not be seven, it might be four, it's one of them. Anyway, but um, I, I, I don't deal with that when I just deal with the one in Ezekiel and that's good enough for me. But we gotta go, it's time to, to bail out of here. So let me put this in. answer one question. Yes. What, why, why is Jacob called Israel Jacob? You mean back and forth in the Bible? Okay, you got to go back and you got to watch the sermon on the naming of Jacob, okay? And then you'll find that out. But, Jacob is but, a deceiver. Well, well yes, but you, uh, Jacob is the man, Israel is the idea, the ideal, okay? I always so, thought it was because when he was in the spirit, he got called Israel. Well, that's what I just said. In the flesh. That, that's what I just said, the man and the ideal, the spirit. Oh, okay. Right, yeah, there you go. So there you go. And there's more to it than that. Go back and watch the sermon. But that's that's the general idea. And so yeah. you'll often see him used interchangeably in there. Okay. I don't know. Go back and watch. <laughs> it's the one that, uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll go ahead and close here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and meet in your presence and to talk about your word. And uh, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God and that you have not rejected your people, Israel. As certain as the... Uh, that uh, chalk is made out of chalk and we thank you that that is true and it will always be true and we thank you that jesus words that they will that he will return to them when they call on him will be fulfilled in their due time and you already know that and so we pray for it in them and we also pray for a happy and speedy exit out of here for your people the church and uh, until that day comes we would ask that we would be faithful servants of your word studying it, sharing it, and having a burden on our hearts to tell other others about the glorious work of Jesus, the saving message that comes through his shed blood. Then, Lord, we uh, just love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, let me back this baby up here. I don't know. I was thinking that through the whole thing. I hope he's okay, because none of them showed up. Um, let's see. We're going to go to break, and then we got to back this up. And almost there. Okay. Have a wonderful week. We love all of you and take good care of yourselves. Make make sure, make absolutely sure that, that's okay. That's what I was going to tell.